0: My guest this week needs no introduction. He is the president and owner of Riata Restaurant, Mike McAuliffe. On this episode, you will hear about the founding of Riata, how the tornado helped shape the company, and his views on retention of his top talent. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a rating or review. Thanks. Matt McGee is an employee of Frost Insurance. All opinions shared by Matt or guests of the Healthy Conversations podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Frost Insurance or Frost Bank. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for insurance, banking, or investment advice. Healthy Conversations with Matt McGee is brought to you by Straight Up Podcasts. Mike, thanks for coming on Healthy Conversations. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. For somebody that's never really heard of Riata, can you give us kind of a two-minute what it is and where it's located?
1: Yeah, so we're a Texas-based restaurant, and um, we like to say that we serve legendary Texas cuisine. And I think Texas cuisine has kind of evolved because it's really a melding of flavors, because you certainly have the Tex-Mex influence or the Southwestern influence, but then, obviously, we're in Texas. Um, steaks are a huge seller. So, if you looked at our sales or the dollar sales, we still sell more steaks than we do anything else. But you know, we've got a carne asada with uh, stacked coninchilados that sells very well. We have a redfish um, that also sells very well, which it kind of brings in some more of those Creole influences. And I think that's one of the things about Texas. When you go from Beaumont to El Paso, by the time you get to El Paso, you're Closer to probably San Diego than you are Beaumont. So, really, when you get to Far East Texas, it certainly does have a lot of those Creole, Louisiana influences. Then you have the whole connection we have with Texas and Mexico. And then, obviously, in the high plains, you've got the uh, cattle feeding region of the state.
0: Yeah. I mean, you described kind of how big Texas is and all the various things that go into it. I mean, how is it operating? a restaurant in alpine as well as fort worth are they very similar or two kind of totally different businesses
1: so um good question so the restaurant in alpine is really where everything got spawned at um so we opened the first restaurant up there in march of 1995 and you have to understand my father he's a serial entrepreneur and basically did not have a good place to eat so that's how the first restaurant started but you have to realize restaurant in alpine Maybe 30 employees, and I can't remember how many employees were at the time. Yeah. but, but it, a much different scale than when we moved to Fort Worth. So that fall, fall of '95, Bob Simple, who was president of Bank One at the time, and they owned the Bank One Tower in downtown Fort Worth, came hunting at the ranch, ate at the restaurant, and he said, "Well, why don't you think about opening up a restaurant in Fort Worth?" And at that time, the Century Two Club who had been up at the top of the bank one tower had been closed for a couple of years. Now, I think one of the really, for me, one of the really interesting things here is, is getting back to the point where people were starting to mold, um, meld retail and, and office space and residential altogether. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think now we kind of, when you look at places like South Lake town center, it's basically normal to do that. But back then, You really basically, the only restaurants you had in downtown Fort Worth were private clubs, and they were stuck at the top of the building or at the bottom of the building, and that was it. So, here you basically had the route at the top of the Bank One Tower that we had private dining rooms. I think we treated people like members, but they didn't have to buy a membership. And I think for the most part, the food was better than what was found at a lot of private clubs. So, we were very successful from opening up the restaurant there in May of 96. Everything's going great. March of 2000, tornado comes through Fort Worth, hits the bank one tower, hits us. Um, We rebuilt and opened up in 42 days, but then we were the only tenant in the building. (laughs) Eventually had to leave the building in January of 01. um, And then we moved over to Sundance Square in May of 2002. Okay. so Now, so during that time when we were kind of closed, that's when we started doing a lot of catering. We were just trying to keep as many of our employees as busy as possible until we found that next location. So, you know, fast forward to January of 01. That's the first year we actually did a restaurant at the Rodeo. It was called Rialto at the Rodeo. We were in one of the front rooms there. Um, that turned out to be a very good partnership between us and the Fort Worth Stock Show and Rodeo. And eventually it went from one restaurant to two restaurants to You know, we take the second restaurant being the backstage club. Then we started the Mexican restaurant out there. And then we opened up two of the Starbucks proudly serves. So, you know, during the rodeo, we've got five locations, but it really all goes back to the tornado and trying to keep as many of our employees busy during that interim.
0: That's interesting. Yeah, I was not here uh, during that. But yeah, it sounds like the tornado was very instrumental in kind of helping shape where things are today. Absolutely. It looks like you guys kind of figured out from the very get-go how to incorporate the space, the culture, and the experience all into one. I think I had Lanny on a couple weeks ago, and he seems to have figured that out. The JOTs, uh, Righteous Foods, things like that. Was that by design or just kind of by I mean, you guys were coming
1: from Alpine. It's I just... think it was lucky. I mean, to the point that, you know, you have to remember the name Riata actually comes from the movie Giant. Yeah. Which was filmed over in Marfa, which is only about 30 miles from Alpine, or you know. Mm-hmm. So that basically came from, from the movie Giant, you know, and then the Western memorabilia, etc. And then coming to Fort Worth, that's kind of where we had grown up. My dad's um, moved a silicone manufacturing business from Michigan to Texas in 1975, just before I was born, and it's out in Weatherford. So Fort Worth was really always kind of our hometown. Gotcha. Right? So I don't think we basically targeted Fort Worth as being, you know, we, right now the yeah. tagline is cowboys and culture. I don't, and I think that fits Riata very well. We didn't plan to come to Fort Worth because of cowboys and culture. It's because we had already, where we already did yeah. business and we already had the place. But I think, I think that does work out very well. But I think more importantly, that kind of gets back to the history of Fort Worth. So you have to realize over there in the north side, where all the slaughter plants used to be, they used to be there because before you grain-fed cattle, the, fat, the cattle were fed grass, and they were then shipped to slaughter, which happened to be here in Texas. Once that people started grain-feeding cattle, which offers a better product, etc., it's easier to ship the cattle to the grain than it is the grain to the cattle. So that's why all the, the feedlots are in the Texas Panhandle and Kansas and Nebraska. And then therefore, the slaughter facilities are also up there. So that's why the slaughter facilities aren't really operating in the north side like they did. It's really because of that, that movement of livestock. I think where the bigger um, the bigger thing that that's happened to Fort Worth is is all those ranches they ended up finding oil on, right? So there's all these... <coughs> Oil and gas companies from Midland and West Texas that all still have very close ties to Fort Worth because of that old relationship with the cattle, um, slaughter facilities. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Realize, so Sid Richardson, before Sid Richardson was a go- oil guy, he was a cattle buyer. Okay. So I mean, if you go, I think it's, I think it's called Big Rich, you know, the old story about the, the original big wildcatters in Texas, it talks about him being a cattle buyer when he first started out. Awesome. Um, yeah, I mean,
0: there's obviously a ton of history here in Fort Worth you guys have tapped into that. Where do you kind of see things going? Obviously, they've been changing a ton over the last five, ten 10 years. I mean, maybe from a restaurant perspective, I mean, do you guys continue to to look for new spaces or happy with kind of what you're doing?
1: You know, we opened up a new space with Sundance Square. We've got a really good partnership with them called 203 Cafe. Yeah. And it's a little over a year old now. I mean, it's a sandwich shop. And that really came about because Sundance had an available space. And we've got a big management team at the restaurant. So, I mean, you know, salary between chefs and front of the house managers and people in the private dining and catering department, there's over 20 people. So we were trying to do a way kind of a, almost like a team building exercise. So we basically said, here's a space figure out what we should do with it. Right. Okay. So then the teams basically created a couple of different concepts. Um, and we invited Johnny Campbell who runs Sundance square to basically hear the presentations. Um, but, it, but for us, it was, you know, two things. One, it was to give a new idea on a new spot, but also you know, we're such a big restaurant. There are some chefs that primarily work caterings, and there are some chefs that come up primarily work the line in the restaurant. Well the, well, the ladies in the catering department, they might have very little contact with that chef that's working the line, you know, because they just don't work together because they're, they're working with the chefs that are working on the caterings. So that was a way so that we got everybody together working together on a project. So, you know, that's kind of how it happened. Um, I think the restaurant industry is really interesting. You know, I think that if you have to fall back on what's happening to the real estate and retail markets, because a lot of these um, locations, they used to be 30% restaurants and 70% retail. Mm-hmm. Retail is going more and more online, So it's becoming more restaurants, you know, 50-50. The problem is, is every additional restaurant is some additional competition. I'm not saying the pie is not growing, but in in essence, everyone is basically stealing a little bit of sales from everybody else around them. And and, and I, the best example I can use is even in downtown Fort Worth, when La Madeleine's closed, our lunches got busier. But especially at that lunch price point, and if you want to go to downtown Fort Worth, you say, you know, Capital Grill might be the most expensive location in Fort Worth. Everybody's within like 25, 10 to $25, right? So it's really a pretty tight range. So, you know, you can go get a salad and soup at, uh, La Mela's or you could, and you can get a salad or a soup at Riata. So that's a good example of how everybody's a little bit of a competition for everybody else. So I think that's, that's a big thing long term is, is what's going to happen in the retail environment and how's it really going to shape out? So, I mean, obviously, you know, if you're a banker, no bankers really like restaurants because of the failure rate.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and, uh, and I think that's probably going to increase, not decrease because, um, because of the competition out there.
0: Yeah. I mean, you were talking a little bit about kind of your deep management team and whatnot. You've had some celebrity chefs come through like, What has that experience been like and what's it like when they kind of leave? Does that leave a hole or I mean, what are your thoughts on that whole thing?
1: You know, I think a lot of them, maybe they weren't celebrities when we first hired them. You know, so I mean, I think some of it came about and I think that's great. Um, I think for us, even when we do menu rolls right now, um, it's not one chef submitting new items to the menu roll. It's basically every chef that we have submitting items and we have a tasting panel. And the tasting panel decides if they like it or, or d- doesn't like it, and then we really look at that item that it's replacing and saying, "Hey, you know, is this better than the item or than we're replacing?" Because I don't want to make a change just to make a change. Yeah, and, and, and I think every restaurateur will will laugh about this, but you will. We have like eight desserts on our dessert platter. We will get rid of the slowest selling dessert. And all of a sudden, you start hearing from customers, oh, my God, that was my favorite. And it was like, you must have been the only one because we only sold 25 last yeah. month, right? You, mean, you know, like one a day, right? So, you know, I mean, we're really trying to look look at things analytically. But still, there are some people that, you know, when they come to your restaurant, they already know what you're eating. And I think if you probably look at your own dining habits, yeah, you know, when you go to certain yet. places, you know, you don't need to see the menu. You already know what you're going to order.
0: Yeah. Interesting. I'm definitely guilty of that. Uh, You talked about your dad starting the company. I mean, what's it like running a, a family business, especially one with, given the nature of running a restaurant, the high touch, people coming in daily,
1: high expectations? I think I'm lucky because I do have a big management team. So I probably spend less, I don't spend very little time the day-to-day management of the restaurant, you know, and I can spend more of my time either like some more than I think what people call it with either the business development role or working on some special projects that, that don't have to do with the day-to-day, um, running the restaurant. I mean, we're looking at new POS systems, which is a system that the, the server uses mm-hmm. to basically send their orders back to the kitchen. I can spend more time on that, focus on that, you know, and at least get it narrowed down before we bring our managers in to look at that. Um, because I've got that flexibility because, you know, the restaurant business, we're closed two days a year, Christmas and Thanksgiving. That's it. Other than that, then you got, you got, you know, then you got, you know, you got two shifts a day. So the management team there at the restaurant and the chefs, for the most part, they're looking out and seeing you know, what do I have to do tomorrow and the next day and the next day?
0: I know when I had Lanny on, he talked a lot about one of the biggest challenges was just finding real estate and finding a place that makes sense. I mean, when you look at different concepts, is that one of the biggest challenges given where things are today?
1: Absolutely. I mean, you um, know, and, and, and I think, you know, I, Lane and I haven't specifically talked about this, but I think, I think we kind of feel the same way. I think part of it is, is that, you know, you have those high traffic areas, but the hardest thing about the restaurant business is that we do 45% of our business on Fridays and Saturdays. So then we do the other 55% over the other five days a week that we're open, right? Mm-hmm. So it's very like lumpy sales, right? And, um, and different than a lot of other industries, we basically charge the same on a Friday night as we do on a Tuesday night. Yeah. But if you were in the airline business, You would charge way obviously more. Obviously, that's something that changes, you know, daily basis, basically on demand, supply flying demand. So I, I think the challenge of every restaurant is is how do you get the Sunday, Monday, and Tuesdays busier, you know, because if because, you know, almost everybody's busy on Fridays and Saturdays. But just being busy on Fridays and Saturdays is not enough for you to cover your overheads, mm-hmm. you know. I think people's travel, pardon, travel, they're not as traveling as much now as maybe they have in the past. They want things more local. They want things close to their house. You know, if they could walk to it, I think that's a positive. Um, obviously we're in Texas, so it's a little bit of a different environment than you are in some other areas of the country. But, but I still think that you are seeing that a little bit. Um, even locally with Clear Fork opening up, you know, there's a lot of people in those Tanglewood neighborhoods that still might be driving to Clear Fork, but it's a mile from their house. Yeah. Right. So they just have more options.
0: so yeah. and,
1: and that being said, I think it splits some of the business. So yeah,
0: from downtown takes away. Yeah. And, and, and even a lot locally, of I mean, if you want to say,
1: from a Charleston's to a Doc B's, not their, you know, to a tavern, not their, or in even a press cafe, they're not exactly the same, but they're not that different, right? Yeah, very similar. You know, and, you know, obviously the tavern, Charleston's and, um, and, you know, well, tavern Charleston's been around a long time. Press has been around, I don't know, three or four years now. Yeah. And then you have Doc B's being down, down there for about a year, but, you know, same, similar price points, similar type of food but I think it's also changing people's travels patterns. But yeah. I think people want local. So
0: I agree with that. What advice would you give to somebody starting a restaurant or business here in Fort Worth? I and mean, you just gave a bunch, but anything else you'd kind of
1: highlight? Yeah. The thing that I've seen recently, and I think it's a great way to get your name out there is doing pop-up, you know? So one of my good friends, um, is the, um, is the hot box biscuit. Oh yeah. Firm. I've, went that was awesome yeah so it's uh, good friends of mine but, but that's a great way to get your name out you know get that installed base of customers before you actually turn on the lights yeah that, it was packed when yeah. we went yeah i mean I, you know so um so i think that's a great way to kind of get your toes wet before doing it cuz the other way that people have thought about doing that in the past was the food trucks mm-hmm. which is fine but but obviously it's a pretty different dining experience yeah, absolutely you know? um, where now with the pop-ups, that's becoming... You can charge a flat fee. Flat fee. You can go find some different unique locations to have them in. Um, and it's still a sit-down meal. Where transitioning from, you know, from a food truck to a sit-down meal is a little bit different. So, but obviously, I mean, you've seen Taco Heads. Taco Heads, you know, Sarah over there, it's a great example of something that started in a food truck, has moved into a couple permanent locations now. Yeah
0: to jump back a little bit. I mean, is it difficult to retain talent in the restaurant industry just given the tremendous turnover like how how do you think of that aspect just cuz I imagine that's very difficult.
1: It is, but I mean, I, th- I think it's it's different for for everybody specifically. I do think when you have some new restaurants opening up, you've spent millions of dollars to open up a location and you need to hire some more kitchen staff you're willing to pay more because at some point you've got to get open because you've already dumped a couple million dollars into that investment Mm -hmm. you know for that restaurant if they start paying everybody a little bit more all of a sudden their their costs get skewed or they're going to have to change their menu pricing to offset that also from like especially on the server side i think whatever the the environment the 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 employment environment in general affects things so you know we go back to like 2008 2009 when you had the economic collapse, right? We didn't hire a server for 18 months. Now we still have a lot of servers that are working their way through school and working at Riata. The problem is once they graduated, there were no other jobs available. Mm -hmm. Certainly no other jobs that they could make as much as they were making at Riata. So we didn't have to hire anybody for 18 months. You, You fast forward to now where you have that same person as they're working way through school, they're getting a lot more options you know and we've lost people to being you know um flight attendants you know you know and, you know but that's been an that's that's been a market they've been hiring a lot of people lately um so you know and obviously with American Airlines based right here in Fort Worth, it's kind of almost a nice little feeder system for them um and if you really and if you really go back and seeing you know the skills to be a good hostess or to be a good server is very similar to being a good flight attendant
0: Makes right sense. yeah. So we can wrap up with a few kind of rapid
1: fire questions. Uh, any plans for a follow up cookbook? Not now. I mean, a lot of our cookbook now was talking about the history of the restaurant and really talking our most popular items. Mm-hmm. Um, and for the most part, our most popular items do not change. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm certainly not a chef um, that's just out there to make the next great thing i mean i think obviously if you started a new restaurant or new concept you know that you could tie that into a new cookbook um but even then i think the world's changing so much you know i mean obviously we're doing a podcast right now but all of the different podcasts and youtube videos you know if, if i was trying to really learn how to cook you know from a cookbook and not being almost a a coffee table item you know what's better than a bunch of youtube videos? Or incorporating those you know, YouTube videos, some kind of a digital media, really showing the people how to, yeah. how to cook. You know, so um, the world's changed a lot even since we did the last um, cookbook in 2006,
0: 2007. Yeah, along those same lines,
1: uh, what podcasts have you been listening to? I listen to a bunch. Um, so I've kind of got them broken out into like three different categories. You know, I'm, I'm a, I'm a hunter, hunter and fisherman. So I love that. So I've got my outdoors podcasts. You know, one of the interesting ones from, from the outdoor section is a mediator podcast by Stephen Ranella. So, um, he's a guy that's, that's been on non hunting and fishing magazines, but he's really more about, you know, getting kind of back to nature, eating, eating what you kill. Because a lot of times when you're working with venison type items, you know they don't have as much fat, so they're less forgiving as other items. That being said, there's a lot of other new techniques now that are very easy for the home person to do that were harder. So I mean, like if you're worried about drying out venison, but you sous vide, that's not a big concern anymore, right? Hmm. You know, I mean, you know, where before you know it's very easy to to overcook a an elk an loin or something like that. Yeah, what was the name of that one? Uh, that's the Meat Eater podcast. Meat eater. Yeah. Okay. On more of the educational side, you know, I listen to the Harvard Business Review, The Economist, Freakonomics Radio, How I Built This, Stuff You Missed in History Labs class, (laughs) um, TED Talks, you know, um, you know, so one of the, one of my favorite TED Talks of all time, and I think it's, it pertains um, to kind of a topic, you know, where they talk about, you know, cattle and methane and things like that. But you go and listen to Alan Savory, and he's got a TED Talk where he talks about what's really about grazing and management. And he talks about how grass oxidizes. And if you look at over time, all these different grasslands evolve with hooved animals, basically intensively grazing country and then moving on to the next place. So it's about a 20-minute podcast. But if you think about it, you know, here in the United States, we had the American bison or buffalo herds that that graze through the grasslands across the United States. I think some people, you can even see the videos in Africa of the wildebeest and their big migrations. You need that type of grazing. And even the cattle, the cattle people have figured it out where they do intensive grazing. That's very important. And I think one of the things that I think is sometimes forgotten about, you're never going to free range chickens over a 10,000 acre ranch in West Texas. You know, that'd be pretty funny to see. I mean, you know, I mean, efficient might be more convert, might be better converters of, of feed to, to flesh than a cow, but that's just not possible. And you're going to make all the red and you're going to make all the hawks really fat because they're going to eat a lot of them. Um, but you can do that with cattle where you can graze that country out in West Texas that only gets 15 inches of rain a year, you know, that would never be suitable for growing crops. And turning it into something so i think really if you look long term saying how are we going to feed the world you're going to do it with grazing animals now maybe it's not cattle but it's cattle or goats or sheep But all around the world there's a lot of this stuff that's not suitable for growing crops and you're going to do that with grazing animals and at least if we look at texas in texas five years ago we were in a serious water shortage across the state. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, mineral wells with 30 days without being water. You know, I think we really need to focus on water conservation and, and what are we doing to be the most efficient that we can with it longer term.
0: Yeah, we can wrap up with this one, but you hit on an interesting point with companies like Beyond Meat and things like that coming out. Like, what are your thoughts there? I mean, Lanny was definitely opposed to it and thought that, and it sounds like you're kind of in the, the same camp there.
1: I'm okay with whatever. I'm, I'm here to make customers happy. Yeah. Right. I think in general, I think all we all like less processed, the more processed. Right. I mean, so for me, like the Beyond Meats and, and the, that's uh, the 100% that, that, that's as much process as you can possibly get. But I think the thing that, that a lot of them forget about is they think they're doing something great, but they really don't understand how grasslands have all evolved over the last 100 years and that's why you know, go back and look at that ted talk because you know he's got videos saying hey here's here's areas that haven't had any grazing on them um, in 100 years and the country looks terrible and there's you know and you and you have washing and that kind of deal because the 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 grasses aren't healthy But, and that's where if you have cattle grazing them and churning up that soil, soil, and then obviously, you know, you know, they've got the manure and that kind of deal. It's all mixing together. You know, that's much healthier because the only other way to kind of get rid of oxidizing grass is basically to control burns, which is interesting, you know, management practice. Yeah. But if you want to talk about CO2, that's another big CO2 emitter, right? So, you know, it's a complicated, complicated, um, Issue right now, but but for me, it really is getting back to process not process. It almost gets back to the whole deal. You're going to have grasslands that you're never going to be able to grow crops on, anyways, without heavy irrigation. You know, you should be growing something on if we're going to feed the world. Because I think sometimes you know nobody in the United States really understands what it is to to starve like people in the third world do.
0: Yeah. I mean that brings up a a ton of different points. I mean, from the water perspective, I mean, are there any things that we should be doing? That or is it we should be doing a lot of things? Okay. I mean,
1: obviously, I live in Texas, and there's a whole heavy oil oil and gas segment. Um, I'm also a fisherman. I don't really understand about growing corn to make it into ethanol. (laughs) You know, so we're 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 irrigating land you know to grow corn and then we're turning it into ethanol you know i mean you know i'm gonna sound like t Boone pickens in a minute but you know obviously i do think you know, I'm, you know we're used to powering our cars with with gasoline but then i'll say see, there's, we've got a ton of natural gas in the state um at a very very low price um and that is something that that can be made and um can be used in an automobile um and everything else so same thing i mean you know most of our on you yeah. know electricity you know it's natural gas, which is the on demand you know we've got we're getting more and more renewables, but still, when it's dark and the wind's not blowing, those natural gas power plants are being fired up, the supplies with all electricity, and if that's to help charge your Tesla, that's great, you know, but we need that.
0: Awesome, Mike, well, thanks for coming on.
1: You're welcome. Thank you very much.
0: Hi, everyone. it's Matt. Thanks again for tuning in to Healthy Conversations. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe to the show on iTunes, leave a five-star rating, or write a quick review. If you really loved it, share the episode on social media. It really helps our iTunes ranking. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.